I'm really interested to see, yeah, where where it it falls, when it when it gets kicked out. <laughs> oh wow, yeah, not showing any bias. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Keep It Fictional. I am your host today, Fiona, and I am joined by Corrine, Virginia, Mark, and Sadie, and today, wow, and today, real Canadian, that was not intentional, but it is a good segue for what we are going to be talking about today. Me and my book friends have each chosen a Canada Reads finalist that we will be talking about today. So there are five books and five of us, uh, which is very convenient. Canada Reads is a competition between five Canadian books represented by Five Canada famous individuals who go head to head on the television, the radio, and podcasts in order to find this year's number one Canadian read. This year, we have an exciting array of books represented by some great people. So I will let each of my book friends introduce their book, but I just want to let you know who you might see if you tune in between March 27th and March 30th to watch the debate. Books will be represented by Jeopardy Superchamp, Matea Roach, actor Keegan Connor Tracy, the amazing Bangra dancer Gurdik Panther, TikTok creator Tasneem Gidi, and actor Michael Gray Eyes. And all of this is hosted by Ali Hassan and they will choose the top book, but at the moment, right now we have a five-book shortlist. So we are each going to take a moment to talk about that book that we were kind of assigned. It was a little bit of a, okay, well, I claim this one, so what are you going to do? Oh, well, I've already read that one, so what are you going to do? So we may have some rare reviews and strong opinions, as uh, we always do on this show. So I am going to start off with Sadie, and she actually has a book that many of us have read and some of us have loved, so I can't wait to hear what Sadie thinks. Thank you, Fiona. So my book has actually been talked about, I believe, on our podcast before a couple of years ago. So it's uh, not a super, a super recent review that we have received. And this was actually the first book that I have read by this author, even though they have been on my to be read list for quite a while. So this author, Sylvia Morena Garcia, is a uh, Mexican by birth. She says Canadian by inclination. I believe she lives in Vancouver. And uh, she has written a number of books and has won a number of awards. So she is uh, the winner of the Locus and the British Fantasy Awards for her work. She has also won the World Fantasy Award as an editor. So she is quite a decorated novelist already. So it'll be interesting to see if she can add Canada Reads winner. She can at least add Canada Reads finalist to her list of awards. So the book that I am going to be talking about is Mexican Gothic. And this book, it takes place as a historical horror novel with a bit of a supernatural twist to it. So it takes place in the 1950s. It starts in Mexico City and then ventures quite quickly outside of Mexico City. 
to the uh, burnt out mining town of El Triunfo. And the story revolves around Noemi. And Noemi is a socialite, um, young woman, having a great time living in Mexico City, living her best life in Mexico City. Uh, She goes out and uh, socializes all the time at parties. Her family is quite well off and quite well known. So she enjoys the benefits of that. Um, But she also has further aspirations. She wants to be an anthropologist. And so she goes to the university and loves studying anthropology as well. So her world is kind of turned a little bit upside down when her dad receives a letter from her cousin, Catalina. And Catalina was married not too long ago and went off to live with her husband in a old mansion called High Place. And her husband, his family is originally from England and once were owned a mine and were quite successful and powerful in the town. But since then, the mine has shut down. There's been scandal. They have lost a lot of money. So they are living in this kind of decrepit mansion called High Place in the mining town of El Triunfo. And so at the behest of Catalina, in this letter, Noemi's father asks her to go and check in because things don't seem exactly right. Catalina talks about kind of some weird things in her letters that don't don't really make a lot of sense. And so Noemi's father wants her to go check it out and just kind of see what's going on. Uh, So Noemi does that. Uh, She arrives not really knowing what to expect. She is greeted by Francis, who is Virgil, who is Catalina's husband's cousin, I believe, is the relationship. And he brings her up to the house in this old-fashioned car. She arrives at the house, and it's a very, very old-fashioned, run-down, decrepit house. She is welcomed kind of, by Florence, who is Francis's mother and the niece of the patriarch of the family, Howard. She doesn't meet Howard right away, but he is talked about. Um, he is very ill, but he is still very much the head of the household. So Noemi is brought into this household. It is cold in attitude as well as in feeling. She's told that there are many rules in place here. No talking at the dinner table, no smoking, Don't venture outside of the house on your own. They give the reason that there's mist and fog and it could be dangerous. But Noemi is not entirely sure if she feels 100% comfortable here. But she is here for Catalina. And so she decides um, to stay and kind of figure out what is going on. She is told that Catalina is suffering from sickness, but they have a doctor. And the doctor is helping to get help her recover But Noemi is not entirely sure if that's true. Some of the things that Catalina is talking about don't necessarily seem like sickness. It seems like there might be something that that a psychiatrist would be better suited to help, which is what Noemi tries to suggest to the family. And they say definitely not. So anyways, over the next couple of weeks, Noemi learns more about the Doyle family. She learns that there is a tragedy in their family. No one really talks about it. She doesn't really know what's going on with that, but it has kind of left this dark cloud over top of the family for many, many years. She also starts having very strange dreams. They seem like they're very real. She'll wake up in the morning not knowing if it was a dream or not knowing if something had actually happened. She starts to sleepwalk, which she had done as a child, but had not done for many, many years since then. And she starts seeing and hearing a voice that starts to tell her a little bit about the family in very cryptic ways, but it starts to to talk to her. 
and tell her a little bit about the family. So she decides that she's going to try and find out a bit more. So she ventures into town at the behest of her cousin, actually, to get a tincture that she has been taking from a local healer. And through meeting this local healer, Marta Duval, Noemi learns that the tragedy that befell the family was about the daughter, Ruth. And Ruth, at one point, snapped. And she took a shotgun, and she killed most of the family. She tried to kill Howard, and then she killed herself. This tragedy has been hanging over the town. It's been hanging over the family for many, many years. So Noemi kind of takes that story and takes it back to the house. She doesn't talk too much about it. But the longer that she stays at this house, the stranger her dreams become. And the more confused she sort of becomes about what exactly is happening. She learns about Howard's wives, multiple wives, sisters who one of them died and the other one replaced her as the wife. She learns about his children and a little bit more about Howard himself, which she can't quite tell his age. He seems very, very old and very, very sick, but she can't quite tell exactly how old. The stories seem like he's been around forever, but it seems too long for a normal human life. She also starts seeing these snake emblems everywhere a circle of a snake eating its tail. She notices them everywhere she goes, and she starts to wonder exactly what that is in relation to the family and to the house. So Noemi stays at this house trying to help her cousin, and the more she stays, the more she learns that everything that's going on at this house is not exactly as it seems. It is not exactly in the realm of reality. She starts having even more bizarre dreams. She starts having terrible interactions with her cousin's husband, Virgil, where he is in her dreams, sexually harassing her. She doesn't feel like this is entirely in a dream world, but she can't prove that it's not. And she she can't understand how this is happening in reality and not in her dreams. And so eventually, Noemi is told about a big family secret. And it is a secret that involves her. It is a secret that at one point involved Catalina. And it is a secret that involves all of the Doyles who live in this house. And it is a secret that does not live in the world of reality. So I won't tell you too, too much more. I'm not sure how much they kind of give away in the Canada Reads uh, descriptions or anything like that. But yeah, so it is classed as a horror novel, I believe, which is not actually the genre that I tend to go towards. I would, I wouldn't say that it's scary. I would say that there are definitely some gross descriptions that I struggled <laughs> with. Um, so that may may kind of be the horror aspect of it. And there were definitely some some yeah, some pretty disgusting bodily things that are talked about that I struggled to read through. For the most part, I I did actually enjoy the book. I found myself kind of going along with Noemi in the story. Um, I found that she was a sympathetic character for the most part. She did make some decisions that I don't know if I would have in that place, but I don't know what I would do in that in her place. So, <laughs> so yeah, so I, I definitely, I found it to be a pretty good read. One thing I would say about it is, is it was not the kind of book, I read it kind of over quite a while, and it wasn't the kind of book that I found myself wanting to go back to all the time. And so I don't know if that was just kind of the the pacing of it. I just couldn't get into as as much. But I did in the end, I was definitely reading through the pages and wanting to get to the end. And, and so I think that uh, Garcia does a good job at the very end of 
of kind of amping up that suspense and and the story to make you want to keep reading it. I think if you are looking for something historical with a bit of a supernatural twist, but but kind of gearing more on the atmospheric sort of horror idea, I think that it would be a really good fit. As I said, there were hard to read parts. So if you're not great with kind of more gross type of of things, then that might be a struggle. But it it did not necessarily impede the reading of the book in my mind. It was just kind of a part where I would read it like, ooh, do not want to read that again. Yeah. So I think I would, I would probably, I think I gave it a solid three out of five. So not my absolute favorite book, but definitely something that that I could see recommended to people who who were kind of looking for a certain type of book. I'm curious to know, I, I know a couple of my other book friends have read this one. I think that Green has talked about this one on the podcast, as I mentioned before. But yeah, so I'll be curious to kind of see what other people think about it and what other what all of what all of Canada thinks about it and um, how how the debates go and see kind of where it where it falls in the Canada Reads lineup. So that was Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno Garcia. Thank you so much, Sadie. Yeah, I'm really interested to see Tasneem Gidi champion it because I I loved it. Like in terms of like the atmosphere and everything, like it was a really fun read. But I was I expected it to have a little more like critical race theory. That's sort of like it's 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 coming from that perspective of a horror of like oh yeah, like racism is scary <laughs> in some ways. There's other scary things in there for sure. Yeah, I feel like it's you know it's a good just atmospheric book, but I don't know how much it goes into other stuff. So I'm really interested to see, yeah, where where it um, it falls, when it, when it gets kicked out. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Not showing any bias. I mean, I feel like I have a slam dunk book that we're going to get to. You got to hold on to number five to get there. So uh, let's see what Virginia has, whether she's going to like readily champion uh, what she's got or it's going to be a little hesitant. So the contender that I had is championed by action filmmaker Keegan Connor Tracy. And this is Greenwood by Michael Christie. This is a multi-generational family story that spans more than a century in time and takes place all across Canada from British Columbia to New Brunswick. So I would say, first of all, that this book has been attached to words like eco-fiction or dystopian. But I just want to start by saying... I feel like this is very much a family historical fiction. Was there an ecological disaster in that current time and the context of the book? Yes, but it's not about describing life in the dystopian world at all. And in fact, because it covers so many time periods, more than like a whole century, that present time is only a very small part of it. So don't let those descriptions deter you from reading a book. If you like historical fiction, I think you will really, really enjoy it. As you can probably see from the cover or even from the title, Greenwood, trees feature very heavily in this book. And also look at this gorgeous, I don't even know what you call it. This is the spine, whatever you call this part of the book. It's also like mirror that kind of tree-like texture, the tree bark. And tree can be seen as many metaphors for many things. But I think one of the most interesting thing about the book is that, and it works really well for the story, is that the, the structure emulate the tree rings. Um, so imagine looking at like a cross section of a tree trunk. So moving from sort of left to right, we start from the outermost ring, which is the most recent time. So we're looking at 2038 in the book. And then as we move farther into the tree, we move inwards. We're kind of moving actually backwards in time. So we go into the periods of 2008, 1974, 1934, and eventually we landed in the middle, which is the oldest time of the story in 1908. And then 
we've been moving back out. Now we're moving forward in time again. So we visit those years once again. But now that we have the knowledge, we have some more information about and some more background about what happened. It's a really interesting way of looking at the story now that you know a little bit more about the people and also what happened. And then until all the way, we get back to the outermost ring, which is in 2038 once again. And so I find the timeline really interesting and it works really well with the message that the story is trying to convey in regards to the idea of a family history. So that was probably my favorite thing about the book. And you all know that I like a, a time hopping book. I'm one of those weird people that like to be confused by a timeline that jumps all over the place. But I would say because this is still very linear in some ways because it's just moving backwards and forward, but in, in chronological order, I think it's never confusing. So it will appeal, I think, to different types of readers who, who like their timeline straightforward and also maybe like their timeline a little bit different. So let's start with sort of the current day in the book in 2038, where we meet Jake. Jake is working at a tour guide at the Greenwood Arboreal Cathedral. Even though it's called a cathedral, it's really a resort. It is located on an island off the coast of British Columbia. And in 2038, Canada has become what the author called the panic room of the world. It is one of those places that still have not been impacted yet by the event called the Great withering, which is this fungus that has infected and killed a lot of trees all around the world. And so as a result, the earth is sort of like a giant dust bowl. Many people developed chronic respiratory diseases that are fatal. And this island and many parts of Canada remains unimpacted. And so it is becomes a sanctuary. And of course, when you become a sanctuary, it is only accessible to the richest people, to the most privileged people. So these tourists, they come to to the resort and they come to be here to be with nature, to feel that wonder, that serenity, that all that nature inspires. And as Jake says, to pretend that everything is okay and that the world is not falling apart. And it's Jake's job to feed them those lies. Jake has a degree in botany and she's a scientist. You know, she's done lots of research. She knows a lot about trees. So she's very, very overqualified for this tour guide job, basically. But with a massive student loan, you take what you can get. But Jake suspects that it's not really her degree that get her hired. It's probably because they just find it kind of amusing that her last name happens to also be Greenwood, which is the same as the cathedral. Um, so they figure, oh yeah, why not? Why not hire a Greenwood? Well, one day Jake was requested specifically for a private tour. And she was quite surprised because she doesn't get a lot of those. Like she's a good tour guy, but she's not the best one. But she was even more surprised to see her ex-fiance Silas. Thankfully, Silas is not coming here to rekindle old flames. He's here for a business. He claimed that he is here to help Jake get back what is rightfully hers because he believes and he said he has found evidence that Jake is actually a Greenwood the Greenwood, related to the company that now owns this island and owns a lot of other business all around Canada. And so Silas believes that he and his law firm has found so many evidence to support this claim that he can help Jake get back all of this and it could all be hers. So with that, we leave the current time and we move to 2008 and we meet Liam Greenwood. We start to meet people that 
may or may not be related to Jake. So we have Liam Greenwood, Jake's father, whom she has never met. He's a carpenter and he does gorgeous work with reclaimed wood that he gets from a farm in Saskatchewan. Much to the horror of his mother, he makes furniture for big corporations and business because he's so good at it. But right now, when we meet him, he is on the floor, wondering why he can't feel his legs. Can't quite remember what happened, but it seems like he might have fallen off while he was on a job. Then we go back to 1974 and we meet Willow Greenwood, Liam's mother, therefore Jake's grandmother. Willow could have a life of luxury, she could have a life of comfort, a life of stability, but instead she decided to give it all away. She gave all her inheritance away and chose to live in a van with her young son, Liam. Instead of living in a house, enjoying everything that she can, she drives from place to place to protest, to sabotage all the logging companies that are destroying the forest that she loves so much. And because of that, she's frequently in and out of prisons. And Liam's upbringing is very, very unstable. And it's something that he deeply resents because he never feels that her mother cares about him at all. Then we move back a little bit to 1934. We meet Harris Greenwood, Willow's father, the owner of the giant lumber company and many, many more companies around Canada. And you can't go anywhere without seeing that Greenwood logo. But the market has crashed. And so Harris is trying to really hard to negotiate different deals, including deals overseas with the Japanese. And this is just at the brink of World War II. So it is not a deal that people look kindly upon. Harris has lost his eyesight since I was a teenager. So for this trip to Japan, he decided to finally hire a describer, not to help him navigate because he has got used to it and he's quite good at, you know, finding his way. He doesn't need help, but he wants to see the world, see the world in a different way. And so he hired an Irish poet to help describe the world to him. And so we get to learn a little bit about his relationship with this describer that goes beyond the employer-employee relationship. At the same time, we also go to New Brunswick and we meet another business tycoon, RJ Holt. And Holt is about to adopt a baby. It's actually a baby that he has with a woman that he employed because his wife can give birth. And so he's just going to like pretend to adopt this baby that is really his. But the woman is having second thoughts. She doesn't want to give up her baby. So in the middle of the night, she decides to run away. Unfortunately, she still hasn't recovered from childbirth. She's still very weak. So on her way out, she bled to death. But that was before she bundled up her baby in a blanket that she sold that very night, wanting to give the baby something that does not belong to Holt. And she hanged that bundle on a nail that has been hammered into a tree, hoping that someone will find the baby before Holt does. And someone did. And that is Everett Greenwood, a squatter on the estate of LJ Holt. And he, of course, can't support a baby, doesn't want to care for a baby either. But seeing this 
body of the mother, presumably, seeing that this is someone who really, really wants to get away and really tries to get the baby to safety. He feels that the least that he could do is to go find the baby another new family. So that's what he did. He tried to get out of the estate and try to find a family for the baby. But that is something very, very hard to do. It is during the Depression era. Nobody wants to take on another mouth to feed. And also Holt is sending all sorts of people after him. So he decides to hop on a train and travel out of province and across Canada eventually to British Columbia to try to escape the people that are pursuing him. And finally, we get to 1908 when we meet Everett and Harris, two brothers. People think of them as brothers, even though they're unrelated. And they are literally raised by a village after an accident that has happened. And we learn about them as kids. We see them as kids and what happened to them and how they become interested in woodcutting, how they become interested in setting up a business and how they end up being estranged, how they end up being on the two sides of the country. Greenwood is really about the messiness of families. It's about the repercussions of decisions that are made, of actions that are taken, and discovering all the truths and all the lies and trying to untangle this family history. And like a tree, the past is really inside all of us. We carry that history, we carry that trauma with us, whether we know it or not and whether we like it or not. And as our characters discover and learn more about their family stories, maybe about why their parents or why their grandparents did what they did, it's not so much about forgiveness because harm has been done, but it's more about that understanding and trying to find a way to move forward. And I think because of how the book is structured, we get to know these characters in a very short period of time in their lives and, and, and through very specific incidents. So it's, it feels very immediate. It feels very personal. It feels very intimate. And I, I quite like that about the story. And I think despite covering many, many events, and again, some description of the book sell it as, oh, it's a mystery, or it's like, you know, you got a thrill of a chase across the country. It's really not about the plot. It's very, very much about the people. And of course, that's what gets me reading. But this family story never feels melodramatic, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't manage to be tear-jerking in many parts. I was kind of surprised that I, when I was like, I didn't realize I was crying until I was like, oh, what is this? Like, why am I crying at this story? But it's touching in, in, in many different bits. And I think because the family story is so strong and so central to the book, even though the story is a climate change book about how we destroy nature, it doesn't feel like it. It's still very much centered on that family. But then again, it might just be pointing out exactly what the book is trying to say, that is my bias as a human being, that I'm seeing everything is about people instead of about the world. So yeah, this is going to be a great read for anyone who loves family stories, who love historical fiction. And I'll leave you with a quote from Michael Christie. What if a family isn't a tree at all? What if it's more like a forest, a collection of individuals pulling their resources by intertwined roots, sheltering each other from wind and weather and drought. What are families other than fictions? Stories told about a particular cluster of people for a particular reason. And like all stories, families are not born, they are invented, pieced together from love and lies and nothing else. Thank you, Virginia. That sounds pretty great. I mean, you had me at multi-generational. I also like it sounds very conceptual, which is, which is pretty cool. Definitely looking forward to hearing more about that. 
Okay, uh, we are going to uh, move on to Mark. What is your book that you're championing, Mark? Thank you, Fiona. So the book that I'll be championing is Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. And as Fiona mentioned, all the authors for Canada Reads are Canadian. And in Mandel's case, she was born in the small town of Merville, British Columbia, on Vancouver Island, um, which is kind of interesting because one of the main characters of this book is also from a small town in Vancouver Island. So I almost feel like Mandel was trying to give a little shout out to her to her upbringing with this particular character in this book. Station Eleven was published in 2014. It was Mandel's fourth book, but definitely was around the time where she was taking off in popularity as an author and is now easily and perhaps arguably the biggest writer in all of Canada in terms of popularity, even drawing the attention of international figures like Barack Obama, who featured Sea of Tranquility, Mandel's most recent book, on one of his uh, books to read lists. And as well, this particular book, Station Eleven, was also recently adapted into an HBO series. So definitely a lot of people have been picking up the book in recent months because of this. I would say the most well-known author of the five that are in Canada Reads this year. So some people may be a little bit not rooting for Mandel, not needing more attention, but um, we'll see how that plays out in the actual debates. So in the story Station Eleven, it begins in the present-day Toronto of roughly 2014. They don't give an exact year, but given that's when it was published, you can kind of more or less assume that's when it's taking place. And we begin at the debut of a new experimental production of King Lear at the prestigious Elgin Theatre on Yonge Street in Toronto. And in the middle of the performance, the star of the show, actor Arthur Leander, who played the role of Lear, suddenly collapses due to what is initially appears to be a heart attack. But little do those in the production or those in the audience at the time know that Arthur did not just collapse and later die due to a heart attack, but rather was due to a new and rapidly spreading flu-like virus that later becomes known as the Georgia flu that killed him. Named after the country of Georgia, they initially spread to Russia and then the rest of the world, primarily through international air travel. Also at the theater the night of Arthur's death is Jivan Chowdhury, a paramedic who was in the audience of the performance and initially tries to revive Arthur after he collapses. Another person there that night is Kirsten Raymond, a child actor playing a younger version of one of Lear's daughters. The stories of Arthur, Jivan, and Kirsten are threaded throughout this book as it moves back and forth between the past and the future, the before and the after of the Georgia flu pandemic that ultimately wipes out more than 90% of the human population. Due to such a sudden onset of this flu, there's a catastrophic decline of population. Um, and there's no part of society that remains unaffected by it. We also learned that in the early days of the pandemic, people very rapidly died, very quick onset death. And security was is very rapidly declined in countries, provinces, and cities, essentially ceased to hold any meeting or sway as the institutions that composed them fell to pieces one after another without any people to manage or staff them. Modern forms of technology go dark from the internet to smartphones to TV, as there's no longer anyone who can keep the networks or electricity up and running. Consumer goods have largely all gone off the market with only the rare handmade personal item and homegrown food available for consumption. Travel must be done by foot or animal as engines have gradually deteriorated or run out of fuel to power them. As humanity originally struggled to adapt to its radically altered circumstances, we're told of stories of general lawlessness, 
complete lack of trust in strangers, and only a gradual development of independent human settlement and camps in places like abandoned Walmarts and in small towns where only a few survived as new friendly people gradually moved in to form a kind of patchwork community of sorts. As part of the backwards and forwards narrative and out of order telling of the stories, different narrative styles are utilized, such as first person narration, shifting narrators, shifting points in time, the use of transcripts of things like an interview with Kirsten by a librarian at one point in the future, at one of the few remaining libraries as part of a preservation project, and the comic book quotations are additional narrative devices that sort of break up the way the book flows into unique bits and pieces. So it's definitely a book where if you like a very consistent kind of one narrator voice, you may not like it, but if you like to get these different kinds of perspectives, different narrators, different points in time, then you may find it interesting the way that the book has been composed in this kind of out of order and like a thread that runs throughout each of these characters throughout each point in time that's represented. But you kind of have to do a little bit of work to put the pieces together a little bit as well. So interestingly, we also see points of overlap and interaction in each of their lives, such as before the pandemic, Jeevan's earlier career as a paparazzi photographer and journalist, chasing celebrity wives and getting juicy scoops, including one about an impending divorce, an exclusive interview with the Hollywood actor Arthur Leander, who of course is our actor in King Lear. We also see the friends and family of these characters as they adapt or at times sadly perish along the long and harsh road that they must travel because of the Georgia flu and unsettling of the entire world. This includes Arthur's longtime friend, Clark, who finds himself living in and later more or less running an airport commune of survivors after they were stranded there on the last day of air travel in the airport's history. There's Giovanni's brother, Frank, who works as a ghostwriter, who at the time of the onset of the pandemic is writing a delightfully fluffy and ego-stroking work for an unknown but immensely rich philanthropist and businessman. Frank and Jeevan spend the early days of the pandemic locked in Frank's apartment after Jeevan goes on a late night grocery store run, bringing back many, many, many grocery carts full of food where they hole up in the apartment, hoping to wait out the pandemic. But unfortunately, as we later find out, this is not the case and they must eventually venture out into the greatly altered world. The book's title, Station Eleven, even comes from the name of a comic book series that is created by one of Arthur's ex-wives, Miranda. And as a personal favorite of Kirsten's, even though it was never formally published, Miranda shared her work with various people over the years, including a young Kirsten backstage at a certain production of King Lear. So in the comic Station Eleven, Dr. Eleven, an outer space scientist, uh, resides on Station Eleven, an outer space ship slash colony that is one of the few remaining vessels carrying humans after the Earth is rendered uninhabitable, and the trials and tribulations of its isolated inhabitants who try to make the best of their situation in outer space. This comic, which is read and considered by Kirsten throughout the book, is another example of a potential catastrophe that threatens humans and life in general. It kind of gives the story another angle to consider in a more sort of thoroughly science fiction environment, but in much the same way that readers of the book may reflect on and compare this pandemic in the story to the real world pandemic, the characters in the book compare their pandemic to the catastrophe that befalls Earth in this science fiction environment. In the future aspects of the novel, I should say, it takes place 16 years after the onset of the pandemic and are primarily told from Kirsten's perspective. And at this time, Kirsten is now a member of a traveling performing arts group known as the Traveling Symphony. 
And it's through our travels with this group that we see much of the pandemic altered world. The symphony is primarily composed of classically trained musicians who perform European symphonies, quartets, and other associated pieces of music, but also a group of actors who perform plays, especially those of Shakespeare, which is Kirsten's part in this traveling symphony. The symphony provides a rare encounter with the arts and live performances since they have essentially ceased to occur. Electricity is gone, so there's no more electronic recordings of music or television or anything like that. Libraries and museums and similar kind of memory and preservation institutions have largely gone the wayside because all other places were essentially ransacked and gradually neglected over time because of the general conditions of society. There weren't anyone to maintain these institutions. People were looting them to try and basically take what they could get to, to survive on their own. So these kinds of aspects of life are very scarce in this future world. And the members of the symphony are driven by a collective love of the arts and belief in the importance they can give to people's lives, that the means of the works that they perform are still entirely relevant to the lives of people and sort of leads to their motto emblazoned on the side of their traveling caravans because survival is insufficient. It kind of gives a feeling to the book that there's these other things that people can still strive towards and feel a connection to beyond simply living a life and not dying a horrible and diseased death. So for the most part, the symphony has this dedication to their craft. And together, they kind of form a, a kind of chosen family that's formed between its members. There's very close connections between them. And it's interesting to see the relations between the characters like Kirsten with another actor, Saeed. There's the violinist, Dieter, the conductor of the symphony, and these other characters. You get a lot of interaction between them and kind of see like this kind of camaraderie and shared love of their craft that is also a very important part of the book the dedication to arts acting music and these things even in a very deteriorated world how they can still live on in this world there's also frequent reflection among the characters about the world before the georgia flu including the people that they lost their favorite memories of people places and things and in this way there's a kind of inversion of uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's famous aphorism that hell is other people. And instead here, it's altered to hell is missing the people that you love. Again, connecting to this idea that the loss of the past world and reflecting on what truly was important in the world, not necessarily like affluence and things like that, but the people, places, and memories that tied them together. So it's interesting to see that aspect of the story as well. On their travels, the Traveling Symphony also begins to hear rumors of a museum that's supposedly collecting notable remnants of the time before the pandemic. A museum of human history that they begin to travel towards, hearing that several former members of the symphony may be residing there now. There's also encounter currents to the traveling symphony's feelings of optimism and uplift. There's also continued fear, dread, and control represented by a traveling prophet who has been gathering followers, stores of weapons, and abducting people to take as part of his traveling group of people that sort of represents a countercurrent to this more slow and gradual uplift that you see in the traveling symphony. And we also find out later on that this prophet may also have a surprising connection to these characters of Kirsten, Arthur, and Clark, Arthur's former friend. Throughout the story, whenever we're introduced, introduced to a character, there's usually a surprising kind of connection between these characters and different points in time that they may have known each other at some point in time or they cross paths 
in some way and tries to draw connections between them in these surprising or interesting kind of little ways that I thought was an interesting way to introduce characters and relate them to one another that you don't always see in a, a novel. One thing that I will also mention is that in Mandel's work, this one in particular, you don't always get like a sort of neat and tidy, altogether wrapped up kind of ending. As you can kind of imagine with the world in the state that it's in, there isn't like a perfect happy ending to the story. It kind of leaves things a little bit more open-ended. So depending on your opinion of that kind of storytelling method, you may or may not like the latter stages of the book and then the final conclusion of it. But I personally didn't have a problem with that kind of ending. But as I know on Canada Read, sometimes you can get these differing opinions between different panelists. So whether or not that will affect the assessment of some of the panelists of the book or not, we will see. If you like a literary science fiction or fictional scenarios that have a clear parallel with potential real life issues, or you enjoy seeing different relationships between people at different points in time, then you may also like Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. Thank you, Mark. And uh, kudos to taking on a pandemic book. Uh, that is pretty much a straight no for me right now. So I appreciate you taking the bullet uh, on that. So uh, we are going to move on to book friend number four, uh, Kareen. I'm really excited to hear about this one. This uh, this would have been my other pick. Yeah, I think that this is a strong contender. So it is 1986. We are in Montreal. And Muna Haddad is struggling. And just a little bit desperate. She has recently arrived from Lebanon, which is in the middle of a brutal civil war. She is still reeling from her recent kind of limbo widowhood. Her husband was kidnapped and is presumed dead. However, she does not have any confirmation of that. She is living in a small apartment with her young son, Omar, and the money that was given to her by his family to start over their life in Canada is running out. She is by trade a French teacher, and one would have thought that in Quebec, this would be an asset. However, as soon as she arrives, she realizes and is point blank told that no one wants to learn French from a foreigner. And so the important qualification that actually got her her immigration papers to Canada is suddenly useless. And so with very, very few options left, she responds to an ad in a newspaper looking for call center operators. And she shows up at an information meeting for Nutrifort, a diet plan which will send you boxes of pre-portioned food to enjoy and help you lose off those pesky pounds. Now, as a hotline operator, Muna will be renamed to Mona, and she will be the comforting voice on the other side of the line who will coach you through all of your weight loss problems. And maybe not just their weight loss problems. So, in the middle of selling Nutra pizzas and Nutra shakes and Nutra snacks, she also just starts listening to people, listening to their problems, listening to their confusion about life, their sorrows, their families. She is the one voice on the other side of the line that listens to people express their deep well of grief at the passing of their parents, their isolation, their depression, their really 
crummy husbands who are cheating on them and then announce it on Christmas Day. Like, come on, like give it 24 hours at least, Boxing Day. That's a Boxing Day conversation. As she listens to their isolation, she comes to realize her own isolation. How because of the loss of her husband, because of her situation in life, she is cut off and alone. But she is not the only one who is alone in this cold city. So this is the book Hotline by Dimitri Nasralla. Is it really hard to read this book without hearing the song Hot, like Hotline Bling in your head? Yeah, it's really hard. It's really, really, really hard. Um, that is the struggle that I had. So it is the story of that kind of tension between assimilation and immigration and integration. The author actually based this story and the character off of his mother's experience in the 1980s. So she also was a French teacher from Lebanon. She came to Canada and found that she could not get work doing what was her profession. And so she ended up working in a weight loss call center. And so he kind of took this this idea, his his own experience, he says, you know, was of the child who felt lonely and neglected and didn't understand what was going on in the adult world and tried to kind of reimagine it from the point of view of his mother who is trying to make ends meet. And <laughs> when he finally presented this book to his mother, this is actually his fourth book. She's a little bit worried about reading it because she's like, this is, you know, really close to my own story. This is like my own life that you're kind of playing with. And at the end of it, her, her response was, well, I think this is the first of your books. It doesn't seem like it was written by an angry young man, which is a very mom thing to say. So it is, on the whole, a very optimistic book, I would say. The end, you kind of laugh, you kind of cry as Muna finds her own way to kind of make peace with her new home, to make peace with her new life, and start to kind of build her own community after isolating herself for so long. And I think that one of the reasons that Gurdip Pander, who is championing the, this particular book on Canada Reads, is that he found a lot of parallels with his own life, especially the first year or two of immigrating to a new place, adjusting to the systems and the struggle of trying to find your place in somewhere that's totally new, the challenges, the hardships. But it is at its core a very hopeful book. It is a very optimistic book. It's a lot of his early books. He apparently writes from more of an angry young man perspective. And this is a much gentler, kinder book than um, perhaps his earlier works. If I had to have like a, a little bit of a criticism of it, it's that it's a little bootstrappy in that if you work hard, if you work the hardest you can, you can pull yourself out of any situation that you happen to be in and everything will work out if you just work hard enough at the scam weight loss center. <laughs> and and again, that's another thing that I, I think the author doesn't maybe... They leaves it up to us to examine the fact that she's essentially working for like a scam company. I mean, it maybe works for some people and she's in some ways taking advantage of them in her 18 minute conversations of saying, how's your life? How's your husband? Have you tried our new pizza? Like it's, it's a little like ethically dubious. 
And especially as like Muna at some points kind of like struggles with her own weight, it's kind of like a little odd to not examine that more than like you would. But I again, I don't think the book is trying to do that. It's trying to kind of show that struggle of that first year coming to a new place. And I think it does a good job of kind of lightly touching on the very specific experience of people who are immigrating to Quebec and the the tension there between like the, the language, the culture, the very, very specific systems that are set up there. And that's kind of what he really wanted to do is show that, you know, specifically within Quebec, sometimes immigrants and newcomers are invisible. They're invisible in that society because it is very focused on the language and and the very specific image of what Quebec is. And so he really wanted to highlight the experience of newcomers in that particular place and time, and especially show that the system, especially in Quebec, but everywhere else in Canada as well, is really difficult to navigate. It is not clear. It is not fair. The education system is not fair. The rental system is not fair. It is all stacked against newcomers in a way that it does not set people up for success. And I think that that is one of the things that this book does really well, is it kind of exposes the lie of the immigration system in Canada in that you are graded on a system of qualifications that you might have, which will make you more appealing to the people making decisions. So in this case, the fact that Muna speaks French and is a French teacher is seen as incredibly advantageous in her application. However, as soon as she gets to the country, gets to Canada, her qualifications mean absolutely nothing. And it's the same story that's kind of told by different characters in the book as well. Accountants, doctors, dentists, pharmacists who are all promised a life based on their qualifications. And when they arrive, it is all an illusion that was sold to them. I think that the book is very effective in that way. And, you know, it is a story, um, as uh, Gurdip Pander says, a story of racism, loneliness, belonging, single parenting, but ultimately of hope. It is the determination of Muna to make a, a life for her child, Omar, but also for herself, which I think is is really quite quite lovely. And, you know, it, it was something that I, I also had to like self-interrogate it. Like, should every immigrant or newcomer story be one of sadness? No, there there needs to be all sorts of narratives in there and a, and a lovely, uplifting story of, of hope and belonging is, is just as important and just as profound, I guess, is, is the word that I want to use. And so I think that this is, for all kind of like my slight criticisms, I think that this is a very, very strong contender for the win. I think that it can speak to a lot of Canadians. I think that, you know, it speaks to Gurdip Panther because it's very close to his own experience. I think that it will speak to a lot of people who should be more aware and have their eyes open to what the experience is like of coming to a new country and trying to navigate new systems that are not, not built to accommodate you in any way. And so I think that this, I think this has got a chance. 
I think it's a real contender. I think it's going to like knock some someone's out, some other books out. So if you can get over the fact that it's going to like put hotline bling into your head for like years, I would definitely suggest picking it up. I think it is a strong contender. And I think that it's a book that I'll think about for a long time after. So that is Hotline by Dimitri Nazarala. Thank you, Kareen. Consider me converted. Consider me convinced was very nice. <laughs> All right, we are coming to book number five here, uh, and it is the only memoir on the list, but it is right up my alley because it's a graphic memoir, and it is by the great Kate Beaton. This is Ducks, Two Years in the Oil Sands, and I'm going to start out with story context and then review. So it is 2008. Kate Beaton has returned to Mabu, Kate Breton, after her undergrad at Mount Allison University in New Brunswick. And she has studied anthropology and I believe history in preparation for a career in museums. However, like many of us Canadians, she finds the reality is that she is underemployable and greatly in debt with students debt. So she hears that taking a job in the oil sands may be a good way to get rid of her student debt. She ships out after uh, many conversations with her parents about how maybe she should be a teacher or a nurse, but you know, ultimately decides, no, this is it. I'm just going to, I'm just going to tie that up. I'm just going to get rid of these loans, suck it up now and benefit later. So you know, she's like 21. It seems like she doesn't have a lot of expectations or preparation uh, for her new job in Alberta. She ends up working in the tool crib, which as someone who has never been to one of these places, seems like a place which people who are out on the ground come to get specific tools. She finds them in the shed, uh, you know, kind of like logs, what they are, who she's giving them to. And, and that is kind of her day to day. But of course, this is all done in the context of Fort Mac, like camps outside Fort Mac. So she does give specifics about where she is, but none of them have uh, jogged any specific ties with me. So I haven't memorized them. But if you did spend some time out in Alberta or, you know, were in the oil industry, you'd probably be like, oh, yeah, I recognize that. But she's there in Fort Mac. And so that's obviously a very different environment than she has been used to. It's extremely male dominated. I think it's like uh, one to 50 is the ratio. And with that comes a lot of discomfort and harassment. And for the most part, that takes the form of unwanted comments, staring, even people jiggling the knob of her her room door when she is sleeping you know people who open the door and and say oh sorry thought it was my room but this seems to happen like way too frequently uh and just a heads up it does contain rape and sexual harassment so that's something that you may want to be aware of if that's triggering for you and this theme is explored throughout, but it, it takes that the form of there's not there's not voiceover, there's no narration to uh, the panels. It's all uh, vignettes that sort of build this bigger story. So I really appreciate the way that that is done, uh, sort of just laying it out, laying out the story uh, with less of sort of a reflection. The reflection is done 
more in the story she builds, not directly. And I, this actually did come out. I thought I had read it because it was on her website as a webcomic. But what I remember is a lot more about the ducks, <laughs> which is like very much in the end and like a small portion. So the, the name, the title actually comes from these like, I don't know, like 200 ducks that flew into the oil sands and and died and, and it received a lot of attention on the air. And I remembered that part of it, but I think that maybe only a portion of it was up on her website like way back in the day. So now you can read the whole thing in context and it is quite, it's a, it's a thick boy. When it comes to comics, it, it took me quite a while, but I mean, I never got bored of it. So we have those themes of male-dominated workplace. She definitely touches on the, you know, like the general difficulties of life and the drugs and drinking, the breakdown of families that is happening with all of these men going away. But as she kind of like notes in parts, she's quite naive to to that part of the culture. So it's it's touches base that is happening, but she's certainly not involved in it. It also reflects a lot on the culture in Canada, uh, people from the East Coast, which uh, if you read this book, you will recognize that that means east of even Ontario, and that an east coast is in fact the Maritimes and not central Canada. But so she does reflect on that um, sort of leaving home to come to Alberta and these industries. There's these, like I, I waver to say cute, um, like Cape Breton grizzled old, old men who were kind of like, yeah, you know, I did the mining industry and and that dried up and I did this industry and now I'm here in Alberta and the, the oil sands. And I mean, like, I don't, cute is the word that comes to mind, but they also say these like horrible things to her. Um, and she she walks that line just like so well of representing these people who are endearing, but also like horrible. And she doesn't make a judgment about it. And I think in part because she sees it really of like, these are my people. These are my Cape Bretoners. And then there's this whole slew of Newfoundlanders. And this is the choice that we're given. Stay in the place that you love and perish or live in this no man's land. And I mean, for her, there's hope because we, we, you know, we know <laughs> she becomes a successful cartoonist uh, and she actually gets to move back to Mubu or maybe she goes to Sydney. And she kind of is the exception. But for these men who are in their 80s, it's really about just like sending money home. And and that's the reality. <gasps> so it's, re it's really heavy. It's really dark. But it's just so well done. Okay. Story. Context. Kate Beaton! <laughs> so you may know Kate Beaton from Hark of Vagrant, which is really funny because this book is so blue collar. And then Hark of Vagrant is what she kind of got known for. I think it probably attracts a lot of undergrads, like people who have undergrads, because it's all of these reflections on these like historical figures, these literary figures, and these like very funny, like tongue in cheek things about like, isn't history so quaint and funny? <laughs> like, <laughs> you got to be in the know to, to get them. And I think it's a very specific crowd that it draws. And then this is is so different. Anyway, she has also written delightful children's books such as The Princess and the Pony and my favorite King Baby. And I know that I'm missing some context, but we do get to see her comics kind of, they're just sort of something she does off to the side in this book, which is really interesting because it's like she has no 
that's not her her game that's not her objective and then it sort of just comes delightfully out of this extra time that she has working in the oil fields so there is a one year in between where she goes to victoria and works in a museum and she loves it and she's like oh nobody's harassing me here life is wonderful i get to do what my degree is for but i can only work 20 hours a week and i can't pay any of my student loans so we see that for a year we see that and then she goes back to the oil fields deeply depressing and relatable okay the review i feel like i've done my review throughout which is just like this is this is a challenging book i love the way that she's done it it doesn't hit you on the head it it just gives you all of this context and gives you an opportunity to kind of decide for yourself there is criticism that she has even kind of brought on herself which is that the the conclusion and again because it's so episodic i don't feel like this is a big spoiler she kind of comes to this realization that she hasn't been very aware. She's been thinking about this perspective of her people, her Cape Bretoners coming to Alberta, but she hasn't thought about the indigenous land that the oil sands are actually on. And so she has this really light bulb moment where she watches uh, an elder talking about a community that is like right down the street from her camp where the oil is leaking into and it's completely destroying every aspect of their way of life, like literally everything. And she has an aha moment of like, this is really messed up. And that's when she, she well, it seems to simultaneously, like it seems to happen at the same time that she pays off her loans. So she heads home. But there is that little sort of window into the, the broader look at Canada and the, the camps on Indigenous lands, which of course they all are. But she kind of criticizes herself in the end note of like, you know, I this is a memoir. This is my experience. But, you know, I wish at the time that I had been thinking about not just like, you know, the experience of a white woman coming into this, but imagine the uh, indigenous women and girls uh, and the way that the oil industry affects them. So I am grateful to it for bringing perspective to this East Coast conundrum and and it's not just the east coast you know i think a lot of people in rural areas in general have this like leave home or or like there's not really another option um and 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 i really as i say i get frustrated when people think that the east is central canada and so i do kind of hope this wins so that everyone can be like hey breton i mean when uh what was it like nick carter aaron carter was moving to Cape Breton and then suddenly people learned about it. I feel like this might be like a more better reason for people to learn about Cape Breton. Anyway, did I mention I'm from Nova Scotia? I really enjoyed reading this and I hope people will pick it up even if it doesn't win. I don't think I have to hope it already has, you know, a pretty big profile with Cape Breton. So I think that it is out there. That brings us to to the end to number 5. And just before we say goodbye here, after all of those talks, I would love to hear, has anybody jumped ship uh, onto another ship, not into the ocean? Who do we think is going to, who's going to win? Who's going to take it home? I think it's going to come down to Hotline and Ducks, and I think Ducks is going to win. Yeah, I was going to say Ducks as well. I, I, as much as I, I didn't mind my book, I enjoyed my book, I find it interesting that it's the only one that does not take place in Canada of the five books. And so I'm, I'm curious for a Canada Reads book if they're if they want to go with something that has a more Canadian feeling to it. So yeah, I'm I'm gonna say ducks. Yeah, I also think ducks is the clear front runner. In my case with Station Eleven, it's parts of it do take place in Canada. Other parts are clearly sort of across the border in America. So 
kind of as Sadie just mentioned, that might also have a bit of an impact on some of the people's assessment of it when they're making their voting decisions. So I think that ducks and then hotline maybe a slight edge over station 11 for that reason. But I think those are like the top three or more or less. I feel like just for the purpose of being Canada reads, I think that's probably what it is. I'm not going to comment on which book is actually better because I think there are some other that might be. But I think for the purpose of this Canada reads thing. Yeah, I feel like that's I feel like it's going to come down to hotline and ducks. That's that would be my prediction as well. And I do think that a comic book always has an edge over like people will just be like, oh, well, I can polish that off. And if you're like, well, I've read one, but I really want to get some context as to the others. I can't just vote for one because it's the one I've read. It's like you're probably going to pick up the comic book. (laughs) There's also a lot of people who are against comic books. They also don't like comic books. So I feel like that might also be a factor in here because there's yeah bias against it i think too so that's true and one thing about ducks is that it kind of it it, it does the prairies and it does the east coast and it kind of skips central uh canada so i feel like being set in quebec definitely gives hotline that that edge as well but it's also very specific though Right. Like it's also very. Yeah. So I think these are very specific stories. And, you know, like there might be others that are more kind of like it goes more Canadian or of Canada, perhaps even to space. So, yeah, I really can't wait to see it. And I hope that we can all have like a a little mini like meeting in the hallway when it happens so that we can just be like, oh, I can't believe this, you know, big stakes. (laughs) Thank you all so much. Um, I really, I love, I love a chance to talk about, uh, talk about this Canada and this literature, which we have. So thank you to my book friends for being part of this. I hope you take a chance to, uh, to pick up one of these before uh, we start the the countdown and the, the, the debate that will be happening again. CBC Gem will be happening on the radio. It'll be happening on a podcast distributor near you you probably won't be able to avoid it i hope you tune into canada reads thanks everyone we'll see you next week thank you for listening if you like our show please tell a fellow book lover about it you can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes join us next week for another fun book chat until then keep it fictional (laughs) 